Welcome to Basic Brewing Radio for Thursday, October 13th. I'm James Spencer. Here at Basic Brewing Radio, we're all about home brewing, making beer at home. With this week, we wrap up our coverage from the Great American Beer Festival. We talk about American wild ales with Vinny Chilurzo from Russian River Brewing Company, an innovator in the field. We also talk about meads with Redstone Meadery's chairman of the mead, David Myers. And Ray Daniels from the Brewers Association talks about a new recipe to celebrate an old fan of beer, Ben Franklin. But first, let's take a peek in the mailbag. If you'll remember this past week, Fred from Apex, North Carolina, wrote in to say he's seen judges at homebrew competitions smoking cigars between rounds. And Fred wondered how that affected the uh, judges' taste buds. Well, I forwarded Fred's question to our expert on taste, uh, Dr. Scott Herness of uh, Ohio State University, and he had this to say. Scott says, I would agree that smoking a cigar between rounds would be a bad idea. A good judge, I would think, would want to take some steps to keep his or her palate clean between rounds. For example, water rinses. The trigeminal nervous system in the oral cavity is picking up signals such as carbonation and alcohol content. Bitter stimuli are detected by the gustatory nerves. The long-lasting effects on the oral cavity by cigar smoke would certainly interfere with the ability of these systems to detect their stimuli so that subtleties could easily be lost. Likely that for these judges, beer and cigars just go together so well they can't imagine one without the other. But Scott says, uh, I'd say, wait on the smoke till your job's done. It certainly isn't making the task at hand easier. Well, there you go. Official word from, from the good doctor. Evan from Knoxville, Tennessee says, I just wanted to thank you for a great podcast. Well, thank you, Evan. I've been brewing since last Christmas and just brewed my fifth batch of pumpkin ale for the holiday season ahead. It's in the secondary now, and I'll bottle it in another week. I just converted an old refrigerator into a kegerator, and I kegged my fourth batch. He says, uh, Evan says, let me tell you, there's nothing quite like walking into the garage and pouring yourself a nice draft beer after a long day at work. Well, Evan, I'm, I'm jealous, jealous of the kegerator, and uh, your pumpkin ale sounds good and timely. If you're uh, interested in commercial examples of uh, pumpkin ale, the guys over at uh, Craft Beer Radio recently reviewed a few of them, and uh, you can find that show at craftbeerradio.com. Mike from Wallkill, New York, writes to say he's pretty new to homebrewing and wonders about using the dishwasher to sanitize his bottles. Now, we've talked about this before a bit, and it's interesting to note that when I first read Mike's email, I had just loaded up my dishwasher with bottles to bottle of California Common this past weekend. You can use your dishwasher to sanitize your bottles. Just make sure they're clean going in, and don't use soap or detergent. It's the heat that will do the trick. Put the machine on heavy, the heavy setting with high heat and the heated drying cycle, and uh, the bottles will be a little too hot to handle at the end. In fact, you want to make sure you let them cool down a bit before you put the beer in there because you don't want to risk killing the yeast that's going to bottle condition your beer. Now, some prefer to put a bit of sanitizing solution in there with the bottles, but I don't. And some don't like using the dishwasher at all because they say any rinse aid that might be in there might harm head retention of the beer. But I think we've used a rinse aid in the past. We don't now for some reason. And I didn't have any problems then. So, But your mileage may vary. 
Garrett from uh, Bowie, Texas, or is it Bowie, Texas, writes in to say, I'm just getting started in home brewing. In fact, I have yet to make my first batch. I just found your podcast and really enjoy it. Well, thanks, Garrett. I find the information informative and in a format that is easy to enjoy and understand. My question is, what resources, books, magazines, websites, etc., would you recommend to someone just getting started? Well, if I can slip into a shameless self-promotion mode for just a moment, uh, I think the DVD that Steve Wilkes and I put together is a very good resource for those who are wanting to get into home brewing. You can see clips of that in, of that uh, video and find more information at basicbrewing.com. And uh, there's a special hidden offer for listeners to the podcast at uh, basicbrewing.com slash special if you're interested. That's uh, basicbrewing.com slash special for a special discount for uh, podcast listeners. Also, we've struck up a relationship recently with Brew Your Own Magazine, which is another great resource for homebrewers. Uh, in fact, if you click on the banner ad on basicbrewingradio.com, you can get a free issue of the magazine. And if you decide to subscribe after reading that first issue, uh, you'll be helping to support this podcast. Zymergy is another great magazine. It's uh, published by the Brewers Association, and a subscription comes with uh, membership in the American Homebrewers Association. Uh, go to beertown.org for more information on Zymergy. Of course, Charlie Papazian's Joy of Homebrewing book is how I got started homebrewing. I believe it's been recently updated. Uh, also, John Palmer has a good book on the subject called How to Brew. In fact, if you go to howtobrew.com, you can read the whole first edition of the book online for free. Uh, for advanced brewing, uh, I recommend Ray Daniels' Designing Great Beers. There are lots of resources out there, but I think those are some good ones to get you started. You may remember Eric from Minneapolis, who wrote in a couple of weeks ago to ask whether he should buy the wort chiller or the bigger pot. Well, Eric wrote in to say, after hearing everybody's advice, that he bought both, an eight-gallon pot and an immersion chiller. He tried it out on a winter warmer. Uh, Eric says he was a little nervous about using the new setup, but he relaxed, and he had a homebrew. That's way to go, Eric. Congratulations. Eric says he thinks a good topic for the show would be brewing software. What's out there and how do you use it? I think that's a great idea. I use a couple of programs, one for my PC and one for my Palm PDA. Uh, it'd be interesting uh, if we could find out some information as well for uh, software for the Macintosh, which uh, I'm quite partial to. We could talk about those and what others use too. Uh, if, you want to if you want to let us know what software you use, for uh, your brewing, uh, shoot me an email at james at basicbrewing.com or use the contact form on basicbrewing.com and don't forget to tell us where you're from. Last week, Greg from Hawaii wrote in to ask what he should brew to go along with the warm temperatures where he lives there in paradise. The issue that Greg has to deal with, of course, is fermentation temperature, and I talked about some options that I had heard of and asked for your input. Well, Nick from Boynton Beach, Florida, another warm place, says, I live in southern Florida, so it can be quite a challenge sometimes. I do have a fridge that with modification can fit six cornies, or Cornelius kegs, and I also have an external thermostat so I can raise the temp if I need to, mostly for lagers. For my ales, I ferment outside in a cooler 
with one to two gallons of ice in frozen milk jugs sitting next to the carboys. I wrap the opening with a beach towel so no light or warm air gets in, and the temperature is usually in the low to mid 60s, even in the heat of summer. I change the ice uh, once a day. I only change the ice once a day. I've even lagered a pilsner this way, just using three gallons of ice. So there we go. There's someone using some of the techniques we talked about last time. Nick uh, from Boynton Beach, Florida. Appreciate the input. Alex writes in from Massachusetts, but he says he's originally from Montreal, and Alex likes to go by the handle Alex, which I think is a cool beer name. Alex says, Montreal may not be at all like Hawaii, but we do have very warm summers and few air conditioning systems. The tricks you gave do help to bring or keep the temperature down, but it's also true that some yeast strains and beer styles are more suited for high temperatures. Why yeasts are den yeast, that's A-R-D-E-N-N-E-S, is one of the highest rated ones for optimal temperature. Have used it at very high temperatures to nice results. The esters produced by this yeast are closer to spices than to fruits and give the beer an interesting and complex profile at high temperatures. High-gravity beers fermented at high temperatures are more likely to produce fusel alcohols, which can give you headaches. It might be a good idea not to brew too heavy a beer at very high temperature. Still, several Belgian-style beers and associated yeasts can tolerate rather high temperatures. While there are more risks of contamination at higher temperatures, Alex continues, this can in fact make for interesting experiments with lambic-like and other sour beers. The wild yeast strains and bacteria in those blends seem quite happy to work at higher temperatures. For instance, some brewers have good results with Roselaire, making Flemish Red and Oud Bruin at rather high temperature. Of course, not everyone likes sour beer, but it can be an interesting avenue for experimentation. Good thoughts there, and we'll talk a little bit more about uh, the, the wild beers and the sour beers in the, in the show. Brendan from Lincoln, Nebraska, has good advice for those of us with uh, Four Seasons. He recommends brewing with the weather. He says, cooler fermented ales in winter and warmly fermented Belgians in summer. Living in Nebraska, my not-so-finished basement gets in the 50s in the winter and 80s in the summer. I fermented Belgian-style ales into the 80s. Vit and Belgian ale yeasts from White Labs and Y Yeast. I've used the tub-slash-frozen water bottle method successfully to reduce the temperature, the fermentation temperature, by 5 degrees or more. Also, it's important to remember that fermentation temperature will be 5, maybe 10 degrees Fahrenheit more than ambient temps. It's interesting. Uh, it's an interesting point. The fermentation process actually increases the temperature in itself. A lot of that uh, uh, heat rises through the airlock and, and uh, goes through the, uh, the sides of the fermenter, but it's an interesting, interesting point to keep in mind. Well, there you go. Once again, great advice from our listeners and I, I appreciate the input greatly, and I, I know that everyone else does too. Well, now, on to our coverage of the Great American Beer Festival. Andy Sparks and I headed out to Denver a couple of weeks ago. You heard the first part of our wrap-up last week. Now, here's part two, as Andy and I talked in the hotel room on our last day in Denver. Well, another, uh, talking about styles that uh, that were popular at the at the festival... The the sour beers, which I had not had before. The first beer that I tasted at the Brewer Supply Group was a New Belgium uh, La Folie, 
which is unfortunately only available at the uh, brewery. Uh, but it's a, it's a very sour beer, and would you say that it would, would be one of these beers that fits into the, the proposed new category of, of American wild ales? Sure. You know, uh, there's a lot of, uh, a lot of these uh, wild, uh, American wild ales coming on the scene, um, which are in some ways uh, reminiscent of some of the Belgian styles, uh, the Lambics and so forth. Uh, but they're trying very hard not to say that these are Belgian beers because they really are um, American innovations. They use some of the same uh, processes to, to make the beer sour, but they're not copies of Belgian beers. They really are unique, um, brand-new beers that these, these guys are, are, are coming up with, very interesting, complex recipes. And the, the, the sourness, really, if you're not expecting it, if you're expecting it to be a just a regular beer, you're going to be in for a shock because it, it, the nose and the taste are quite powerful in some of these, especially the La Folie was really, it was almost like, it reminded me of kind of a sour cheese, you know, it was very, you know, I guess it may be, I guess they used the bacteria in the... Very pungent. Yeah. But uh, there were also other examples of that. Uh, uh, Dogfish Head had a, had a peachy uh, sour beer. There was the Pizza Port. It was another that had uh, a sour beer there. Uh, they were, you know, a lot all over the place. But uh, one that was one of, if not my favorites, was uh, from the Russian River Brewing Company uh, called Supplication. We were lucky enough to meet up with uh, Vinny Cherlerzo, and I'm sure I'm just massacring his last name, and I apologize, Vinny, if you're listening. Uh, maybe we can talk, uh, do another interview, and you can uh, help me out. But Vinny, uh, with the Russian River Brewing Company, uh, has a background in home brewing and has some the entrepreneurial spirit, uh, spirit and has a creative approach to uh, brewing. Uh, and we had a conversation with him, and, and here's what he had to say. So, Vinny, you, you were just saying that you you have a history in, in home brewing. It's kind of close to your heart. Uh. Yeah, I started I started home brewing when I was uh, 18 years old. Kind of like to think that I beat the system and uh, that I was able to buy ingredients, but uh, uh, you know, make my own beer. Although I wasn't 21, but I grew up in a winery, so my parents were very liberal about my sister and I tasting wine, and and we drank. You know, the saying in the wine industry is it takes a lot of great beer to make great wine, but um, or it takes a lot of beer because the beer probably wasn't that great. We were drinking Lucky Lager and you know that sort of thing and uh, Henry Weinhardt's, but yeah, you know, okay regional beer. So, so does home brewing and home brewing so young and in an environment like a winery influence your your career? Uh, yeah, it, it uh, and I got into home brewing and brewing professionally more so because I like the idea that you can make beer in 21 days or so for an ale, and there's a lot of irony there to that now because now we're making these you know, wild ales, these American wild ales, as I talked about earlier in the conference. Uh, that you know these things are taking 12 to 18 months to make so it's totally come full circle that you know i left winemaking to because i liked because i was impatient you know typical american you want to do everything fast and then uh you know now we're making beers that are taking a year a year and a half two years even to make so it's come full circle but uh but the fact that we use barrels in the uh wild ales we do the temptation the supplication
fermentation. Uh, we've got beers aging right now that are old Lafolie barrels from New Belgium. Uh, we've got a beer uh, that we're doing uh, using a fruit called a pluot, uh, which is a cross between a plum and an apricot, another one with Muscat Canali grapes. The supplication has cherries. Um, we're doing a collaborative beer in, in a barrel with 21st Amendment Brewery in San Francisco that they make a watermelon beer. And I always joke with Sean, the owner, that, you know, we need to give this beer some funk and a little more personality. So <laughs> I had him bring up three three or four kegs, and we stuck it in a barrel and added a bunch of Brett. And when I get back, we're going to add lactobacillus. And, uh, so so anyways, the point is is that all the winemaking uh, background uh, and, and understanding oak and understanding, you know, what flavor the barrels can add. In the case of Temptation, it's Chardonnay barrels and Supplication. It's, uh, you know, a Pinot Noir barrel and how those flavors marry. And I think I think a lot of my background in winemaking has helped uh, for that. Now, now, you mentioned Brett. Talk about using, you know, non-traditional uh, fermentation techniques and, and how maybe home brewers can, can get into that yeah. as well. Well, there's, uh, there's three points there. Uh, the actual bread itself, uh, the wood, and then... Um, the sugar, the uh, other fermentables. And, now, uh, what is Brett? And Britannomyces is a wild yeast. It's, a, it's an oxidizing wine yeast that works at a very slow pace. Um, it can be done in stainless steel or wood. It doesn't have to be in barrels. A classic example of all stainless steel Brett beers or Val from the Trappist Brewery uh, in, in Belgium. Um, so the, the bread itself is, uh, you know, is, is the catalyst, is the yeast. It ferments very slow. It throws off very unique flavors of, um, they're very hard to describe, but earthy, leathery. The, the harder to describe is barnyard. Um, the best description was wet dog in a phone booth, whatever that meant <laughs> that someone made. Um, so that's the actual ingredient. Barrels are very hard to, to come by for home brewers. Mm-hmm. And one reason why you would use barrels is that you would get some oak flavor in it, and you maybe even contribute certain flavors uh, that were in the wood before. In the case of two of our beers, one's a white wine Chardonnay, one's a red wine Pinot, so we're extracting those flavors through the barrel aging. This is a year-long process. Now, one of the I, I'm a firm believer in home brewing. That's how I got started. Uh, one of the new programs we just started was um, our, our small barrel lot program for home brewers, and we're purchasing little five and eight gallon barrels, and then we're running damnation in it right now, and we're putting so we're putting the beer in these new barrels, and we're trying to strip the oak flavor out of it because if a home brewer were to buy this eight gallon barrel and make a Brett beer and put it in there for a year, it'd have way too much oak. So what we're doing is developing a new beer that's an oak aged beer, no Brett, nothing weird or funky to it, but we're stripping the oak out of it, and in time we're going to inoculate these barrels with Britannomyces, the wild yeast, Lactobacillus, and Pediococcus, which are bacteria possibly, and then resell these back to a, or sell them to a home brewer so that they have the ability to use barrels in a barrel-age program. So really the whole program we, we developed was built for the home brewer to be able to buy barrels from us that we've already used. It's going to take some time to develop this because you know we need to strip the wood flavor out of the uh, of the barrels but in time homebrewers will be able to buy little barrels that are sizable for them one of the reasons why you would use barrels aside from getting oak flavor is that Britannomyces does, it is an oxidizing yeast, so it will work better uh, with a little bit of oxygen diffusion, oxygen getting through the wood and oxidizing just like a wine would. And, and, and you will get stronger Brett flavor with that. And one of the things that we that we have to deal with is when we get used wine barrels, if they're pitched with tartrates, which is the uh, part of wine that wine throws in the, in the stainless steel or a barrel, if the, if the barrels are totally enclosed 
closed and you can't get any air diffusion, you do throw some off flavors. And then the third point that I mentioned was uh, alternative sugars. So, you know, not just going with your traditional uh, maltose or even uh, if you're adding sucrose or, or dextrose, just regular sugar that, you know, uh, that you can buy from the homebrew store or the maltose from the uh, from the uh, you know the malt uh, fermentation itself. I mean, those are all good sugars. But think about adding secondary sugars like honey, um, uh, you know, uh, fruit, any kind of fruit, uh, you know, those sort of things. Uh, raisins, prunes, dates, uh, currants—all those things are going to give a different, uh, slightly different flavor profile with the bread eating those sugars. So secondary sugars are really fun to deal with and think about. So what's this going to do to uh, say, you know? beer contests and competitions you know when you've got uh, all these beers that uh, you know are breaking all the rules and and are you just going to have one bucket category called american wild ales and throw them all in there i i I think uh that's probably the way it would end up um in truth a person or brewer that's making these beers whether they're home brewers or professional um truly probably don't care whether they win an award and because they're making these beers for themselves the great flavor profile for their own taste from a home brewer standpoint i think that's why you brew as a home brewer because you want to do stuff for yourself uh from a professional standpoint or from a home brewer standpoint um yeah you, you can't categorize all these things uh you know there's always going to be someone doing something crazy right now i i suppose you know ourselves and Heat support and you know a couple others in the country are really on the cutting edge of using you know wild yeasts and bacterias and that sort of thing and using non-traditional ingredients and doing weird things to these things like you know Tommy Arthur at Pizza support roasts uh, his raisins in one of his saisons that he adds so it gives a, a more caramelized quality to it so so there isn't an answer to that other than you just are going to have a lot of different crazy beers. And, and what we hope is that Belgian beers stay Belgian beers, and you can a sour, you know, beer would be entered in a sour category. But when you start throwing in a lot more crazy ideas, um, it, it is what it is, and you just go, you just run with it. It's all about personal expression, so, in a way, right? It is, and this this is really where the artistic side of brewing comes out more than a scientific standpoint. And I don't I don't claim to be a technical brewer. I'm very much of a, an artistic brewer, and uh, and I think those that are making these beers um, probably at least those that are creating the recipes have a very artistic uh, side to the way that they create and write their recipes so and some of the things happen on accident too so um, <clears throat> you know and that that's okay too you know the end product is uh, if it's good that's that's what counts whether it's professional or, or an amateur homebrewer and again it was nice for Vinny to take time to talk to us and and also very nice to to hear from a, a professional brewer that is keeping uh, home brewers in mind and you know and developing the program with the barrels uh, really kind of bringing home brewers along in these new styles and helping them uh, develop their uh, their craft as well yeah it's a it's a really nice to see that they uh, they seem to really care about the the home brewer and it sounds like they want to they want to help the home brewers uh, start to uh, uh, experiment with this new uh, American Wild Ale style. Um, we also got to meet uh, Rob Todd from Allagash Brewing. He's the brewmaster there, and they're also uh, brewing wild ales as well. And the, one of the things they did point out was that uh, some of the things, in, uh, the uh, wild yeasts and uh, bacteria that they use to uh, create these wild ales uh, are uh, kind of hard to control, 
and so you want to be careful and use them uh, and use them sparingly, and also pay a lot of attention to uh, sanitation issues because this can get into all your equipment, and then uh, you will always make wild ales from yeah, then on. Right. Vinny was, I think it was Vinny that was that was quoting someone else, uh, saying that uh, these kind of wild yeasts are. If 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 uh, regular standard yeasts are like dogs, you know they'll come when you call and they'll do what you ask them to. Easily trained. Yeah, exactly. These these new or maybe not new yeasts, but these these uh, uh, wild yeasts are kind of like cats. Yeah, like uh, especially uh, the Brettomyces, which is uh, the one they use a lot of times. You'll hear that abbreviated as simply Brett um, in the beer styles or in the in the discussion of the beer. But uh, they said yes that the, that it's a, a difficult yeast to control um, that it it is technically a yeast um, and that it, but it's it's hard to hard to get it to work it needs a lot of uh, attention and then it can get out of control very easily so you want to be careful with that and uh, but you can get those uh, yeasts from your uh, local home brew shop uh, if they don't have them they can probably order them through Y yeast or White Labs yeast both of them carry some of these uh, unique uh, yeast styles, and you, and you might want to try to find one of these sour beers and taste it before you brew a batch because you know you might not like it. Right, but along those same lines, uh, the first one you try maybe uh, you won't like because it might be very very sour. Um, but go ahead and keep trying them. Uh, I was not a big uh, sour fan. I I really wouldn't say that I am a big sour beer fan, but I definitely had some that I liked a lot. So I would, you know, be adventurous. Uh, if you don't like the first one you try, keep trying them. Uh, and uh, kind of keep an open mind to this style. I think it's one that we'll hear more and more about. Well, one one style that, uh, or one, uh, it's not even a beer, but one thing that we've talked about on this uh, show in the past and one that uh, keeps coming up in, in emails from listeners is mead. Uh, Redstone Meadery uh, in, had a tasting uh mainly for the media, uh, of different meads, not only from them, but from other meaderies in the area. And uh, they're also promoting an an event coming up. And we had a chance to talk to David Myers from Redstone, and he calls himself the chairman of the mead. Well, this is actually our Get Back to Your Roots party, because, of course, we're here at the Great American Beer Festival, and we like to remind the brewers exactly where they came from in the alcohol chain, and mead being the first alcoholic beverage predates grape wine and beer by several thousand years. So we figure this is a great time to set out a whole bunch of Redstone products, as well as meads from the International Mead Festival. So this this is truly a, a mead education party, and what, what better group than, than craft brewers from around the United States to do it with? Now we, we've got home brewers uh, in our audience who not only do beer but do meat as well, and uh, this is really a demonstration of how versatile meat is. We've got lots of different types in here, don't we? And that's exactly the the point of what we're trying to do here is. People think of mead as a singular beverage. They think of it as a big, sweet, heavy dessert wine. But, of course, mead can taste like anything you want it to taste like. And I agree, there's a wonderfully diverse uh, catalog of meads here. Several meads are not actually even available in the United States, which is so much fun about the International Mead Festival, which will be February 10th and 11th in uh, 2006. So it's Valentine's Day weekend, so we encourage people to come out and do their honey and enjoy a bunch of meads from around the world. Uh, Last year we had 85 meads from... 32 different companies representing seven countries as far as way as Australia and New Zealand. 
Wow. And where can people find out more about that? They can go to meadfest.com, or they can always check out our website at redstonemeadery.com. We're the proud host of the, the event, and we're, we're out there beating the drum for mead in general, and we're, we're, we're loving life. Talk a bit about the variety that we've got in there. What kinds of meads are we sampling today? Well, certainly our product lines at Redstone are actually widely diverse, and we're very proud of both our qualities as well as our diversity. We have a nectar product line that's 8% alcohol and carbonated, so it's kind of light, crisp, and refreshing. Uh, We also have a 12% alcohol, non-carbonated, very wine-like, as well as our reserve product line, which is the big giant, it is actually the big giant dessert mead uh, that, you know, we make once a year, different flavor every year, and strictly ready when I say it is. But we have meads that are dry, we have fruited meads, we have spiced meads, we have tej, which are Ethiopian meads in there. And so it is this wonderfully diverse grouping from dry to sweet, sparkling to still, uh, high in alcohol and low in alcohol. And that's what we're really trying to preach to people is, well, mead is wildly diverse. And spiced and, and flavored with fruits. And Absolutely. you you got methaglins and melomels and piments and sizers and traditionals and varietals and braggots and you name it, and it's in there with meads. Well, it's it's a delight to be here. I appreciate your your having us. Well, it's, it's a lot of fun, and let's go back in and enjoy some mead. I hear you. I'm with you. We appreciate David uh, taking time with us, and especially appreciate being able to try all the different meads. I mean, what was your? I'm, it was well, the wide range of, of of how you can use honey in uh, in in uh, making honey wines and, and making meads and and melomels and and sizers and whatever uh, yeah the the, the different uh, meads uh that they had there there were so many different kinds uh from some sweet meads the very strong uh sticky sweet meads to the the ones that are almost like champagne uh some that had flavors in them fruit flavors uh some that had spices one of my favorite was a vanilla cinnamon uh, mead. Uh, I actually got a bottle of it to bring home with me. Uh, but there was several uh, types, including some international meads uh, there. Uh, if you get a chance, if you haven't tried mead, uh, you need to get, a, uh, get some and, and try it. It's very difficult to find commercially available in the United States. But there are a couple meaderies in the United States, and they would love it if you would go to your local liquor store, restaurant, whatever, and ask for mead and, and try and get the word out that, that we'd like to have the ability to try mead where we live. And if you don't have it where you live, you can do what we do and make it. So, uh, you know, I I don't know that uh, that my mead comes up uh, to par with uh, what we tasted the other day, but uh, you, can, you can make some really good meads uh, at home. And to show our dedication for mead, uh, Andy found a liquor store here in town that had... Uh, uh, some of the redstone uh, meads, and we uh, we walked quite a distance to uh, to get the mead, and, and we picked up some beer uh, while we were there. Andy, uh, yes, James. This uh, this should prove our dedication to good beer. Yeah, I'd say. I I have uh, three six packs of IPA on my shoulder in a box. What I, you have got? A, I have, a, I think, the same kind of beer in my box, but I have an additional bottle of mead in here as well. And we've walked how many blocks? I think two of the 400 blocks we have to walk. We got a long, we got a long way to walk. <laughs> there was probably a closer. Well, I don't know if there was a closer place to buy beer, but 
Hey, we got the walk sign here. And we get to uh, check out Coors Field. It's a pretty nice looking stadium. Yeah, this looks nice. I wonder if I'll be conscious by the time we get back to uh, the hotel. <laughs> I know I'll be out of breath since I already am. <sighs> so, so we are guys who are dedicated to the beer, getting beer that we can't uh, get at home. Well, yeah, and that's something that uh, I think all homebrewers can agree on is that uh, the reason we homebrew is because we, we love good beer. And so there's no reason not to uh, go out and get a six-pack or two every now and then of your favorite beer or to try somebody else's beer because that only helps you uh, know more about the different flavors and the different ways uh, beer styles uh, taste. You know, the you know there's, the pale ales alone run the gamut from, you know, very bitter to uh, slightly sweet and malty. So you want to try a lot of beers, and there's no reason not to go out and support the these craft brewers because they need our support, too. And it'll give you inspiration on, on how to, to make your beer better as well. Exactly. Now, another guy who liked uh, good beers was Benjamin Franklin, and his 300th birthday is coming up uh, soon in January. And uh, the uh, Brewers Association had a contest to find a recipe uh, to celebrate uh, Benjamin Franklin. And uh, they found uh, a recipe to put the label Poor Richard's Ale on. And we talked to Ray Daniels from the Brewers Association uh, about the project. Well, we started out with a competition. Uh, That part's over now. Um, And from here on, it's going to be cooperative and collaborative. Um, Basically, what we did was uh, picked uh, a recipe, uh, which will be called Poor Richard's Ale. And uh, that is a recipe that represents uh, what colonial beer was probably like at the time that Benjamin Franklin was uh, going to the pub and drinking beer himself in the evenings. And uh, we're going to distribute that recipe to uh, brewers all over the country and uh, invite them to participate in uh, brewing that recipe um, and making it available to consumers in uh, January for the 300th anniversary of Benjamin Franklin's birth. And what what makes it uh, appropriate for the for the theme? Well, the uh, the sort of beer style is is old ale, and I suppose that's appropriate in some sense if you're celebrating the 300th birthday of, of a particular individual. Uh, but also the uh, ingredients of it are appropriate. There's molasses in the beer, and that was a very common brewing element uh, back in colonial times. Uh, the other thing that uh, the judges particularly liked about this recipe was that it has uh, flaked corn in it. And uh, corn, of course, is an indigenous, indigenous American uh, ingredient. And uh, the colonialists are known to have brewed with corn uh, from very early along, uh, back in the 1630s, 1640 uh, kind of time period. We have documentation of them brewing with corn, malting corn, uh, doing the things that were necessary to make alcoholic beverages from corn. Um, and um, so it's, it's uh, common that they would have uh, used that ingredient. Also, because it was an indigenous American ingredient, it would have um, uh, been something that would have allowed them to avoid the cost of importing uh, ingredients from England, and that was certainly a colonial concept at the time. Uh, so the judges were really, really pretty psyched about having a beer that had both the molasses and, and the corn in it, and, and that's the recipe they went with. And, and how would you describe the character of the beer? Um, it was uh, a, a very uh, pleasant flavor, very uh, sort of malt-oriented. Uh, the molasses uh, has a uh, distinct flavor. 
there was some dis- some discussion amongst the judges and brewers about different types of molasses. Uh, I think uh, they were generally trying to avoid blackstrap, which is a very assertive uh, flavor, and it just takes a very small amount to uh, make that flavor evident uh, using other uh, less uh, assertive uh, characteristics, uh, less assertive uh, types of uh, molasses in the recipe. And I don't remember exactly what the spec was on it, but it's a, it's a, a dark but, but not so, not so uh, dark uh, type of molasses. And, and finally, why why is it important to uh, to come up with a beer recipe to celebrate uh, Benjamin Franklin? Well, Benjamin Franklin is uh, widely attributed with having uh, uh, authored the quote, uh, "Beer is proof that uh, God loves us and wants to see us happy." And uh, so, of course, that's a great reason to uh, to use beer to celebrate Benjamin Franklin's birthday. Later in his life, of course, he spent a lot of time in France, and no doubt he's, he enjoyed wine over there. But but ale and beer uh, truly would have been the colonial uh, beverages. Uh, we didn't have much in the way of, of grape crops uh, on the ability to produce wine in the United States. Uh, ale was the, the dominant drink, uh, certainly in England uh, at the time during the during the 1700s, and uh, would have been the uh, sort of the uh, the cultural uh, drink norm. Uh, for English colonialists in the United States as well. So, yeah, absolutely, it's, it's the beverage that would have been most common amongst colonialists. And we, we also, Ray, uh, Ray and uh, uh, Paul Gatza, who's director of the American Homebrewers Association, were both there at the news conference that uh, we learned about this uh, uh, recipe. And I said, hey, do you have a, uh, a scaled-down version of that recipe for homebrewers? And they, they both said, hey, that's a great idea. So I was kind of surprised that they hadn't thought of that to begin with. So uh, if, uh, if and when they put out a, um, a recipe scale for homebrewers, uh, I will look for it out there and uh, link to it. But uh, it would be really cool to make this, this uh, Poor Richard's Ale um, in celebration of Benjamin Franklin's uh, birthday, and we'll have it uh, hopefully have it ready for January. Well, Andy, uh, it's been a blast. And uh, I appreciate uh, your company and your and your help in uh, covering this event. Uh, I, I feel I've, I'm a little more clued in on uh, how to cover these things, uh, and uh, and just on the on the world of, of beer. And I appreciate uh, coming along with you. Well, I had a terrific time with you, James. Um, this is my first uh, Great American Beer Festival. Uh, I'm sure it won't be my last. Uh, but I, as well as you, have uh, think I have a strategy for next time because <laughs> this is a this is an awfully big uh, event, probably the biggest beer event, in, beer drinking event in the world. Uh, would would probably easily rival some of the uh, the German festivals um, uh, because of the the variety that you get to try and uh, you know 1,600 beers on the floor. Uh, it's you definitely have to have a strategy for doing it. But I had a wonderful time. Uh, I look forward to maybe coming back next year and uh, doing it again. Great. Thanks, Andy. Thank you, James. And thanks again to Andy Sparks for all the help. You can visit Andy's homebrew store at thehomebrewery.com. Be sure to check out our pictures from the festival by going to the description of last week's show on uh, basicbrewingradio.com. Well, next week, kegging. Andy joins us again to talk about Cornelius kegs, how to use them, and how to take care of them. So you'll want to join us then. If you have brewing questions, show suggestions, or just want to say hey, write to james at basicbrewing.com 
or fill out the contact form on basicbrewing.com. And please don't forget to tell us where you're from. And if you're wanting to get into home brewing while you're on our site, you can check out our DVD, Basic Brewing, Introduction to Extract Home Brewing. We'll walk you through the process step by step. You can see a listing of the fine folks across the country who sell our DVD on the site. And if there isn't a vendor in your area, you can order it online. Well, that's all until next week. Until then, thanks for listening. I'm James Spencer. Production help for Basic Brewing Radio and our website is provided by Kelly Dodson. Basic Brewing Radio is a production of Active Voicing. We'll talk to you next time. So long.